1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be finishing up our group learning program essentially. We have one more meeting on Wednesday, but we're going to be finishing up with the very last bit of content in the book that we've been using for the last six months, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. In this book, we have a section all the way in the back called Frequently Asked Questions. These are questions that have been asked of me by various students over the years. And I just notice that they come up quite frequently and they haven't necessarily been covered in any of the chapters that we've been studying previously. So I kind of grouped them together in this area that I call frequently asked questions. So we're gonna be going one by one through these 11 questions and helping you to understand the content there so that as you have these questions, or if you have these questions, you'll have the answers that you need to continue your practice walking this path with the Buddha towards enlightenment. I would like to apologize for my voice, as you might be able to tell, I have a bit of a cold, so the sound of my voice isn't quite the same as normal, but it's okay, I can still teach and not contagious because you're there and I'm here. So there's no ability to contract this little cold that my son has brought home from his school and given to me and his mom. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you for continuing in the program and learning and practicing these teachings. And now we'll finish up our last Sunday talk with covering the frequently asked questions that you will find as you progress on the path to enlightenment. You may have some of these same questions. So let's discuss these. And the first one in the book, is, can I exercise the physical body and still attain nibbana? One of the reasons why this question does come up is because if you talk with any ordained practitioners, they will tell you that they actually don't really exercise. Of course, they go out and walk in order to attain food, they have to do alms rounds, but they don't actually typically do push-ups and sit-ups and jumping jacks and lift weights and you know, cardiovascular exercise and things like this. The reason why is because if they're following the dhamma very, very closely that Gautama Buddha shared, they're only eating once a day. And nowadays there are some communities that will eat twice a day and they always eat between the time that they wake up and noon. They don't eat anything else after noon. So they're either eating just one meal or two meals a day. And this food is actually acquired from household practitioners who have gone out and worked, and as the monks walk around and do their alms rounds, or people will come to the temple and bring them food. So the people are giving this food and supporting the ordained practitioners. Well. The Buddha limited the amount of food for the ordained practitioners for a number of reasons. But one of the things that the bhikkhus and the bikinis recognize is that if they exercise, it's actually going to burn more calories. So therefore, it's going to put more requirements and more of a burden on the lay people to fulfill those needs of the body of the ordained practitioners. And think about a place like here in Thailand, where there's Usually around 300,000 ordained practitioners at any one given time. So, feeding 300,000 ordained people every day, there's a certain amount of effort that goes into that for the household practitioners. So if they increased their amount of activity and exercise, then they would need to take in more food, which would put more requirements on the household practitioners to support them. So if you've talked to monks and you find out, or beaconies and you find out that they don't exercise, you may be led to believe on your own that you think that perhaps you shouldn't exercise in order to attain nibbana. Well, this actually isn't true. You can exercise and still attain Nibbana. Exercise itself is not going to preclude someone from attaining Nibbana. In fact, if you exercise the physical body and maintain the health of the physical body through things like exercise or good food supply and things like this, you're only going to extend the health of the body, extend your life, and therefore, give you more and more time to learn and practice the teachings to actually train the mind. Because remember, Gautama Buddha's teachings are all about training the mind, not about training the physical body. So when he was progressing on his journey for the first couple of years, he was kind of disparaging the body and doing things to the body, but he realized that that's not how to attain enlightenment, that is through training the mind. but. There's a recognition in his teachings about how the physical body is kind of a precursor or required in order to train the mind. Because if the physical body was unhealthy and the physical body died, then the mind would be gone and you would have no ability to actually train the mind. So you can certainly, exercise and it will help you. It will help you gain more health and extend the amount of time that you have to train the mind. But it's important that you don't build an attachment or craving or desire for physical exercise. And remember, a craving, desire, attachment is a mental longing with a strong eagerness. So if the mind has this longing and this eagerness For exercise, then when you don't exercise, the mind's going to be discontent. It's going to feel sad or angry or frustrated. So you can exercise, but just like everything else in the world, you want to make sure you're not craving or desiring or attaching to physical exercise. You also would need to understand that exercise is impermanent. You know, while you may have a set schedule where you choose to maybe exercise every day at 8 a.m., you're not going to be able to do that permanently because of impermanence. So if you wake up and you're running late and you're trying to rush out the door and hurry up to get to the gym or you rush to your home gym and you're trying to exercise really quickly just to get your workout in because you're craving this permanence and you feel like you're locked into this 8 a.m. schedule, then you could very easily make some unfortunate decisions You could pull muscles, you could injure yourself, you could get in a car accident on the way to the gym. So that craving, that desire, that attachment, that longing with a strong eagerness, if you allow that to be present as it relates to exercise, you can actually cause unwholesome decisions and you can cause harm, which is going to cause harm to you. Another thing that can potentially happen with exercise is if somebody's a really fit athlete, They may look down on other people, you know, they might judge other people who don't have a fitness program, which may come from the ego, right? So if somebody is really fit and really exercising a certain amount and really well fit and very healthy, if... You're going to do that, that's fine. You know, it's great that you're healthy. But if the mind starts looking down on other people and judging others with ego, thinking that you're so great and everyone else is below you, then this is going to inhibit you from attaining enlightenment or nibbana. So the physical exercise itself isn't inhibiting anybody from attaining nibbana, it actually can be helpful to ensure the physical body's healthy. But it's all how the mind relates to this exercise you know is it rushing to exercise if you don't exercise is the mind discontent and angry and grumpy are you uh, looking down on other people with ego Uh, what is going on and how the mind relates to this physical exercise so you can certainly exercise or not you know everything's a personal choice and you may choose to exercise for a period of time in your life and then you may choose to stop or you may choose to lessen it or increase it that's impermanent, right so you need to recognize that this exercise is certainly impermanent just like most other things in the world any questions on this one before we move on to the next
2: that's been very helpful for me David because I've been a fan of exercise for a very long time and have understood it to become an attachment and that became very apparent recently with the gym being shut down and I still exercise, but I was probably at maybe two thirds of what I was doing. But over time that maybe came down to about a half and bear in mind, I was doing a lot before, but they got to a point where actually my fitness, was not anywhere like what it had used to be. And I was getting tired even just cycling uh, over very hilly terrain, but over a quite a long distance. And it kind of came as a shock to me. And so um, I suppose my question is, should we exercise purely with the intention to maintain the health of the body and the mind? Because I think the primary motive for many people is that it is for physical appearance. Uh, and also, is an aversion to being unfit as problematic as a craving to being fit.
1: Yeah, good point. I didn't mention that one piece is that, you know, if you're exercising, and it should be for the physical health of the body. And in doing that, by having the body more healthy, it's actually going to put less strain and less stress on the mind, right? If somebody is very obese or unhealthy or have unhealthy body, it's going to put more stress and more strain on the mind. So by exercising, not only is the body becoming more fit and more healthy, but it's also putting less strain and stress on the mind. So in that case, exercise can actually be really helpful to release the stress in the mind and allow you to then work towards enlightenment through everything else that you do. So you wouldn't have to exercise in order to attain enlightenment. But in exercising doesn't mean you you can attain enlightenment as well. And if somebody is making choices, Max, about you know, certain foods that they're eating or not exercising and things like this, this is all about gamma, right? Gamma or the natural law of gamma is cause and effect or action and result, essentially the result of our decisions. So if we decide not to exercise for whatever particular reason, we will experience the result of those decisions, right? Some people are just naturally really fit, you know, based on their genes, they're just really naturally fit and they don't really need as much exercise. Could exercise help them? Sure. But that's a personal decision. Uh, so if someone chooses not to exercise, then that's just their personal choice. and. It doesn't necessarily mean they have an aversion to exercise or they don't like exercise or they or they hate exercise or they're angered at exercise they just choosing you know not to exercise and that's their choice and based on that choice they will have you know certain things with the body that they'll just experience so Uh, There's no requirement to exercise. There's no requirement not to exercise. It really comes down to personal choice, just like everything in these teachings. It's all about personal choice. And whatever choices you make, you will experience the results of those choices, either a more healthy physical body or a less healthy physical body. But also someone who actually exercises could actually be exercising improperly and could actually hurt themselves. And make their body worse. So it's important to make wise decisions. And if you're going to exercise, do it in a way that is conducive and healthy for the body. And if you choose not to exercise, then that's fine too. It's your personal choice. But if you do exercise, I think you will find some moderate exercise will actually be helpful for the physical body as well as the mind.
2: I feel like there's a parallel here between modern day masochistic fitness and the times of the buddha when people are practicing self-torture and this ascetic lifestyle because i think today we might fall into the trap i know this was the case for me and i sometimes observe it in other people that the more pain we go through in exercise the better the results will be and that no matter how much it hurts just just do it because it will be worth it in some way it will come back to us so i feel like this is a good analogy for understanding the middle way. And that's how I see that mindset manifesting in today's world.
1: That's what I was just getting ready to start talking about when I finished up the last answer is I was just thinking all of this comes back to the middle way. What we covered in chapter six is you know, If we do excessive exercise where we're breaking down the tissues and the joints and the ligaments of the body, then that's going to have a certain impact. Whereas if we do no exercise, that's going to have a certain impact as well. So we need to find this middle way. And one of the things that the Buddha actually did, even though he didn't do physical exercise in terms of lifting weights or things like this, he certainly went out for long walks, right? And this is something that some ordained practitioners even choose to do today. You'll see them walking in the woods, doing kind of hikes and things like this. They're not doing intensive physical exercise because as you were talking about, you know, part of this practice is if we're trying to beautify the body and we project our self image from the mind to the body, then that's gonna be a challenge to kind of realize non-self and practice non-self which needs to happen as part of attaining enlightenment. But finding this middle, whether it's you know some walks or some moderate physical activity, it's going to be really helpful for you in your life and you'll experience better physical and mental health.
2: Thank you, David. We have no questions at the moment.
1: Okay, so let's move on to number two. Here the question is, is medicine and medical procedures for the body an attachment? Again, this question goes back to understanding what is an attachment. An attachment is a longing, a mental longing with a strong eagerness, right? So it's not necessarily as black and white or cut and dry as all medicine is an attachment or all medicine isn't an attachment or all medical procedures are an attachment or all medical procedures aren't an attachment. It's all about how the mind relates to these things. So let's give some examples where you could use these things and they wouldn't be attachments. So if you were taking medicine and you had a certain ailment in the body, say let's just say a headache, and you would say, oh wow, I've got a headache and I need to get to sleep, and I need that sleep and I need to rest, so let me take a little bit of medicine and help this headache go away, but at the same time, I'm gonna to try to investigate in the mind why this headache has occurred. Have I had enough rest? Have I had enough water intake? Have I had enough food intake? Am I putting too many tasks on my daily list and this is causing me to have longing and strong eagerness to complete all these tasks and it's a stress headache or something like this? You know, is it biological or is it activity-based? So it's okay to go ahead and take medicine and relieve that pain so that you can get the rest because we all need our rest. But if you were to avoid investigating why that headache's occurring and not make changes in your life in the decisions that you're making, then you're just relying on this medicine. Whenever you have a headache, you're just relying on it and not really fully investigating what could potentially be the issue. So if you have a headache and you feel like, hey, I need to take some medicine, then go ahead and take the medicine. But now, if you didn't have that medicine, let's just say you were out in the woods somewhere, you were camping, you know, medicine for a headache is like a three-day walk away, and your mind was just obsessing about this medicine, and it just you know, wanted this medicine so badly, and whenever anybody talked to you, you were just hostile and aggressive because you don't have this medicine, and there's this headache in the mind. Now, this is an attachment, right? This is that longing with a strong eagerness, and the mind is just kind of obsessing about this medicine. So in that situation, it's an attachment because the mind has this longing and strong eagerness for it, where in another situation, you're just taking it because you need to actually reduce the headache and the pain. Same thing with medical procedures, right? You might have, say, a problem with your liver or your kidneys or something like this, and you need to have a certain procedure in order to extend your life that's understandable however if you were kind of obsessing about this and you know it's scheduled for tomorrow or the next day and your mind was just constantly obsessing about this medical procedure then that's an attachment that's that longing with a strong eagerness and that's what kind of causes stress and anxiety prior to medical procedures sometimes is that attachment that we have, that craving, the desire, the mental longing with a strong eagerness. Another thing that can happen along the lines of medical procedures is going back to what we talked about with sickness, aging, and death. Sometimes people will do elective medical procedures. They're not really required for sustaining life, but there may be like plastic surgery because somebody wants to change their physical appearance. This can very much be an attachment. It can be a craving, a desire, an attachment, a mental longing with a strong eagerness, a desire to look a different way. And you probably have heard situations where people have had one particular plastic surgery, and then that was fine for a couple of months or a couple of years, And then, of course, the condition that impermanence kind of wears off. The mind starts to crave something else, and now they want to change something else. And now they go for that elective procedure, and now they go for a different one and a different one and a different one. And there's people who just constantly are into the plastic surgeon for these kind of things. That's an attachment. That's a mental longing with a strong eagerness so we can't just say that all medicine is an attachment all medical procedures are an attachment and we can't say all medicine isn't an attachment and all medical procedures isn't an attachment going back to one of the chapters we talked about with mental illness or mental health where nowadays there's doctors and the whole discipline the whole industry set up where if you just feel sad you know, there's a pill for that. If you feel anxiety, there's a pill for that. If you feel lonely, there's a pill for that. If you have fear, there's a pill for that. If you have continuous rapid thoughts, there's a pill for that. If you're having trouble sleeping, there's a pill for that, right? So these kind of things can be attachments because the teachings of the Buddha, the path to enlightenment, if you train the mind, you will eliminate all those things that I just mentioned. The sadness, the fear, the obsessive thoughts, the inability to sleep or have normal sleep, the constant rapid thoughts, the anxiety, things like this, that can all be eliminated through learning and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha to train the mind. But this isn't widely known across the world. So there's a lot of people who will seek medical care because they feel like those sad feelings are a medical problem. When reality is, it's just craving, desire, attachment that's causing the mind to want to rid itself of these sad feelings. And it's now has this eagerness, this longing for medication that's going to somehow change these sad thoughts, which doesn't actually work. It doesn't really bring the mind to a stable, calm place. Unless you're having something like hallucinations or delusions or psychosis, these kind of things where the brain chemistry is completely massively off and it's only medications that's going to, you know, jolt the the brain and then thus the mind to come back to kind of somewhat of a stable condition, those situations, you know, people really need medications in order to kind of come out of that psychosis. So... Of course, if you ever need medicine or medical care, go, you know, proceed and get medical care. But it's important that you really look at what's the real purpose of this medical care that I'm seeking. If it's just sadness, anxiety, fears, things like this, you know, learning and practicing this path will remedy that for you. If it's medical procedures to fix certain cosmetic things about how you look or things like this. This is just the mind kind of obsessing about the self-image. That can all be resolved through these teachings. But if you're taking medicine or medical procedures for medical purposes to sustain life or to create a little bit of comfort in the body just until you remedy the situations that are causing these medical procedures, then you can do this without an attachment. Any questions on this one?
2: We have a question from Bill. Can you discuss the difference between a routine and an attachment? I take a variety of vitamins and minerals. I don't obsess about it, but I do make it a part of my day.
1: The way to test if something is an attachment or not is don't do it for two, three, four days and see how the mind relates, right? Cause it's all about how the mind relates to it, right? So like, Let's just say I like chocolate, right? And I eat chocolate, you know, every day. Well, the way that you know whether there's an attachment or not is stop eating it for about a week and see how the mind feels without it. And then if the mind's discontent or you feel this longing and this eagerness for the chocolate, then you know for those couple of days when the mind's like, oh man, where's the chocolate? Like, I can't believe I stopped eating this. Then you know it's an attachment because the mind has this longing and strong eagerness for it. So rather than just kind of be like, yeah, I could give up the vitamins and I wouldn't have a problem with that. Like that that would be fine for me. You know, try for two or three days if you want and see how you feel when you uh, stop taking the vitamins. For me, I feel like At one time in my life, I did take vitamins, but I felt like, well, if I'm taking vitamins to supplement my food intake, then that means the problem is my food intake isn't where it needs to be. So let me, you know, fix that problem. So by fixing the food intake, then I didn't need to take the vitamins. And I never really noticed any difference with vitamins from when I was taking them until I wasn't. So that's something that you can work out on your own, Bill, and determine whether your mind is truly attached to them or not by giving them up for a week and see how the mind feels and see if there's this longing and this strong eagerness for the vitamins. Is the mind discontent when it doesn't have the vitamins? Because if the mind's discontent, then you know there's a craving, desire, attachment. That's the only thing that causes discontent feelings so that's one way to kind of test it on your own
2: we have a question from deborah she says are alternative therapies such as reflexology head massage etc an attachment if they are not being done for medical purposes
1: not necessarily right because you really have to look at how the mind again relates to it right if you're getting a massage and it makes the body feel more comfortable and more relaxed. It gets the blood flowing in the body. This can be very helpful to the physical body, which ultimately is going to be helpful to the mind. So it's not as easy as, you know, saying it's not for medical purposes, you know, because I think with massage, there's always some kind of physical improvement that happens as part of massage. But say you have a massage appointment scheduled on Monday at 10 a.m., and then your therapist calls and says, hey, I can't make it on Monday. We're gonna to have to reschedule till two weeks from now. If the mind becomes discontent because of that, then you know there's an attachment there. So that's where you have to observe for yourself, and that's why right mindfulness, that seventh step of the Eightfold Path is so important, awareness of mind, so that as these situations arise, you can observe for yourself whether it is or is not an attachment. So it's not like I can give you a table and say all of these things are attachments and all these things aren't attachments. It's all about how the mind relates to it. There's people that can be attached to water, to a glass of water, right? There's people that could be attached to a glass of water. Uh, But we also know that we need water to sustain life. but. You know if somebody is like where's my water where's my water like you know i I need the water oh my goodness right the mind's like craving and attached like it can't wait just three more minutes to get to the water it's has this longing and strong eagerness for it so you have to observe how your mind relates to it and how it responds when it doesn't have it and that's a key indicator for you whether or not it's an attachment or not because massage can be an attachment for some people and for other people it may not be it all depends how the mind relates to it but even if massage is an attachment now and you observe that the mind becomes discontent when you can't get your massage you can train the mind to eliminate that attachment and still get massages so it's not that you have to give up the massages it's that you need to train the mind not to crave, not to have this longing with a strong eagerness, not to grasp, not to kind of seek satisfaction in this massage with this outward seeking. That's where the problems of the mind come. So even if you observe that you do have this craving for massage, you might need to give it up for a few weeks or a month or two in order to train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy without the massage, but then once you feel like you've trained it well enough, you could slowly start doing massages again, do like one every two weeks or one a month, and then see how your mind does with that, and then kind of slowly ease them back in, right? This is how some people kind of detox, right, from like things like the news or social media or things like this. You can kind of phase it out of your life for a period of time, observe the mind, Train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy without it. And then when you feel comfortable that that you've accomplished that, then you can easily bring back whatever that is that you were looking to ensure that you don't have craving for. And then just be observant as you bring it back in that the mind doesn't get attached or craving to it. But wherever you see discontentedness, there's always craving, desire, attachment.
2: We have a question from Vashnavi on this topic of attachment. He asks, Sir, for obsessing thoughts, please tell me any solutions.
1: This is an interesting thing. You know, I get this question a lot, you know, where people will pick one particular thing and they'll say, you know, give me the solution for this. Or what's the solution for this? Well, the solution for all of this stuff is the enlightened mind. Enlightenment is the solution for sadness, anger, frustration, irritation guilt, shame, boredom, loneliness, jealousy, resentment, you know, any number of these things, obsessive thoughts. People will pick one of these things and they'll say, what's the solution for this? Well, there's not just like one thing. It's not like, okay, do this meditation every day for 30 minutes for the next two weeks and your obsessive thoughts are gonna be gone. That's not how the mind works. It's a gradual training a gradual progression. The solution to your obsessive thoughts is the enlightened mind. But how do you get to the enlightened mind? Well, you need to learn. You need to practice. You need to develop a life practice of training the mind towards the enlightened mind. It's going to take many months, many years in order to reach that enlightened mind. But there's not just one thing to actually do. You actually need to learn all the teachings and progress towards enlightenment so that's the only answer to any of this stuff that we're talking about which is enlightenment that's the only way to train the mind so there's many things that you need to do in order to eliminate the obsessive thoughts and if you're learning through these classes if you're learning with the book soon to be audiobook with the podcast with the youtube videos If you are doing retreats, if you're doing meditation daily, breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, you're learning the teachings, you're applying them in daily life, you're building this life practice, you're developing this life practice. This is going to slowly, gradually move the mind to be stable, calm, serene, and content, and get away from those obsessive thoughts. But it's not a quick fix. But the beauty is, is that it's a permanent fix. There's nothing out there that's going to get rid of your obsessive thoughts. There's no medication. There's no therapeutic treatment that I'm aware of. None of these things are going to eliminate the obsessive thoughts permanently. It's only through training the mind in these teachings to attain enlightenment. That's the only thing that's going to permanently solve the conditions of the mind by eliminating the conditions that are causing the obsessive thoughts there are certain conditions in the mind that are causing these obsessive thoughts and what essentially enlightenment is doing is training the mind to eliminate those conditions so that you can experience the natural enlightened mind and it's going to take some time but the beauty is is if you stay dedicated to training to learning and applying these teachings, it is a permanent fix once you attain enlightenment. You'll see gradual progress along the way, but once you attain enlightenment, it's permanent, and you'll never need any kind of medicine or medical treatment. You'll actually be able to do this with your body, the mind, and the breath, these teachings, and through developing a life practice.
2: Thanks, David. We have no more questions at this time.
1: Okay, the third question that comes up often is do i need to give up all my possessions occupation and relationships to attain nibbana? again this one comes from household practitioners observing ordained practitioners and thinking that's what you have to do in order to attain enlightenment because ordained practitioners they basically have two robes they have a bowl and that's pretty much it that's that's what they have they don't have a car they don't have a motorcycle they don't have a wardrobe full of clothes you know they don't have a lot of different things they pretty much give up all their possessions they don't have a job or occupation their responsibility is to learn and practice the teachings so that they can then share those teachings with householders in relationships they don't have boyfriends girlfriends husbands wives If they've had those things prior to ordaining, those people need to agree that it's okay for them to ordain and then they go ordain. And even if they have kids, even if they have children or like their parents, they still have the children. They still know that that's their children, but the mind has to kind of completely give that up and kind of walk away from that and walk into homelessness as the Buddha talked about it but that's just what ordained practitioners do this is a very strict discipline that the Buddhists set up in order to create conditions that are the most conducive for enlightenment by stripping down the ability for the mind to actually have craving desire attachment for any given things so through ordaining someone really strips down the ability for them to actually have craving, desire, and attachment because they've given up so many things. But as an ordained practitioner, they still have many, many, many challenges on this path in order to attain enlightenment. So a lot of times household practitioners will look at ordained practitioners and think that's the only way to attain enlightenment is to give up all of this stuff. But that's actually not true. You can attain enlightenment as a household practitioner It's just that you need to have an enormous amount of independent discipline, you know, self-discipline, if there was a self, right? You need to have this self-discipline by ensuring that you're very dedicated to learning and practicing the teachings because you are gonna have possessions, you are gonna have an occupation, you are going to have relationships, which means if you're a household practitioner on this path to enlightenment, there's many more obstacles for you to overcome. There's many things for you to learn and practice to overcome these things, but you can still attain enlightenment. Even Gautama Buddha discussed household life. He said it's kind of dusty, right? he, he He described household life as kind of dusty, right? It's kind of like all these obstacles, but you can still attain enlightenment in the household life with possessions, with an occupation, with relationships, you just need to learn how to train the mind and ensure that you're not developing craving, desire, attachment around these things. And any craving, desire, attachment that currently exists, you need to train the mind to let go of those things so that you can still have a car, for example, but not be attached to it where every little thing that goes wrong with it the mind becomes discontent. You need to have an occupation, but if you have this longing and this strong eagerness for a particular job and for advancement and for notoriety in your job, then the mind's going to be discontent. You can still have relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, children. You just need to learn how to practice true love which is part of chapter 14 that we covered in this program, is learning how to have relationships that don't have attachment. This mental longing with a strong eagerness, eliminating the wants and the expectations and the obligations that we tend to place on other people in the unenlightened mind. So in order to get to enlightenment, you need to overcome those obstacles. But i can share with you a lot of these same obstacles exist in the ordained community because amongst the ordained practitioners they become pretty close they become very much friendly with each other and they have to be aware of their mind too and making sure that they're not getting attached to each other so an ordained person versus a household person they have to learn all the same things in order to attain enlightenment it's just that this discipline that the buddha left as part of the ordained path, makes it kind of like a mother's womb where you're more likely to attain enlightenment in that womb, but it's not guaranteed. This household life, if you learn and practice the teachings and attain enlightenment in this household life, you actually are gonna have an enormous amount of freedom now that you're in the household life. You're gonna have an enormous amount of wisdom having overcome all the obstacles of household life. You're gonna have an enormous amount of wisdom. There's people during Gautama Buddha's lifetime that were householders. They attained enlightenment in the household life, and then they actually ordained after they attained enlightenment in order to share the teachings with other people. And then there's people who ordained and attained enlightenment, and then after they attained enlightenment, they unordained and then became a household practitioner, right? So there's people that are going both ways. But it's not required that you give up all of these things you just need to understand how the mind will wrap around these and it will grasp it will try to hold on it will latch on to these possessions occupations and relationships and if there's craving desire attachment if there's this latching on with the mind this longing with a strong eagerness then it's going to inhibit the mind from attaining enlightenment so once you start learning how to eliminate craving, desire, attachment for a few things in your life with guidance from a teacher, you essentially can take that same method, that same methodology of how you eliminated attachments for certain things in your life. You can apply it to all these other things in your life. And this is why it's helpful to have guidance so that you can learn how to identify attachments, you know, understanding what an attachment is, identifying those and then training the mind to eliminate it and then once you train the mind that way on two three four different things it's just a matter of applying it in the same way to these other areas so i would say that attaining enlightenment in the household life is not easy but it's not difficult either especially if you have guidance to be able to help you and having done so if you attain enlightenment in the household life you'll have an enormous amount of freedom in terms of your possessions, your occupations, your relationships, and you'll be able to help an enormous amount of people in household life through your own enlightenment. You will then be able to help people in your family. You'll be able to help people in your business or in your job. You'll be able to help people in your community to improve the condition of the world, the condition of people's minds through you sharing you know, what it took in order to attain enlightenment. So don't feel that you have to give up possessions, your occupation or relationships, in order to attain enlightenment. Any questions here? We have a question from Bill.
2: How do we know if we are making progress in our non-attachment to our family relationships? And then also, how do nostalgic thoughts come into play? Are these thoughts we are supposed to try to decrease? I think that sharing wholesome memories with siblings is a good quality, but curious to know what you think.
1: What is nostalgic thoughts? Can you explain that to me?
2: I will offer my own interpretation of that, which I think is looking back at the past and feeling pleasant feelings when those memories appear, a longing for the past.
1: Okay, so let's take the first one. How do we know that we're making progress in our elimination of attachment with our relationships, our family members. What you probably notice when you first start becoming aware of these teachings and you understand what attachment is and you understand how it relates to relationships, you'll probably observe that you have certain expectations of wanting people to be a certain way. And when they're not that way you might get frustrated or irritated or annoyed. Well, the more you practice these teachings, the more you learn them and practice them, that frustration, irritation, annoyance should start to gradually dissipate as you become more and more comfortable to just let people be. Just let them be whoever they're going to be without expectations or obligations of how others should be in your life. Just let them be however they, they would like to be And either you choose to be around them and in their life or or you don't, rather than trying to get everybody to be a certain way. So you should notice that in the relationships that you have, your mind should start becoming more and more peaceful with you being able to have much more peaceful conversations. You should also notice that probably prior to learning these teachings, if there was attachment, you might have had anger or resentment towards certain people, and you'll notice that that will dissipate. You'll also notice that prior to learning these teachings, you might have a certain longing or eagerness to talk with certain people, to interact with certain people, to call them regularly, or you might be waiting for people to call you, and then when you call them, or when they call you, it might feel good. Oh, wow, like, mom thought to give me a call, or. Or my brother called me like, oh, wow, that feels so good. What you should notice is that if people call you, you're fine and you're content with that. And if they don't call you, you're fine and content with that too. The mind shouldn't have these enormous pleasant feelings when you're around other people. And it shouldn't have these sad, displeasing thoughts and feelings when you're not around certain people you should start seeing this evening out where the mind comes to the middle and the mind becomes calm and peaceful and stable whether you're involved with certain people or whether you're not and the mind isn't dependent you know this satisfaction or fulfillment of the mind isn't dependent on these relationships that you have around you So that's how you should start seeing the mind gradually move to being calm, peaceful, and content regardless of what's going on in the relationships. Whereas if the mind's constantly obsessing about whether mom or brother or boyfriend or girlfriend understands me, they don't understand me, they don't do things the way they should, if it's always constantly obsessing about whether this relationship is on good footing or it's not, This is a craving, desire, attachment, that longing with a strong eagerness. Whereas if you can just be peaceful, calm, and content regardless and just know that all these relationships are a work in progress and when it's time to talk, you'll talk and when it's not, you won't. And when people call you, that's fine. And when people don't contact you, that's fine too. Your mind's unaffected. Okay. So that's how you'll see the progress in your relationships. And people's words, oftentimes, this is another one. In relationships, if there's craving, desire, attachment, if your mom says something that's displeasing to the mind, it will hurt you because you hear your mom saying this, right? It might be affecting your self-image and your ego, but also because maybe your mom or your dad says something displeasing to the mind, it can hurt you. And those painful feelings is because of that attachment that you're kind of expecting that mom and dad should always say something pleasing. You know, that's a whole nother topic of whether they should or shouldn't. But if you're hearing something from brother or sister or mom or dad, and it's displeasing to the mind, then you know that there's craving, desire, attachment there. But you should see a lessening of this as things improve and the attachment is starting to dissipate. And these are some of the most challenging attachments to deal with, is moms, dads, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, children, because these are the people that are closest to you. And these are typically the attachments that stick around the most and the longest. Some people can't actually eliminate attachments in relationships until people actually die. That's the only time that people can actually eliminate certain attachments or relationships unless it's someone like a child right your child most likely isn't going to die before you in some cases they do but in that situation you have to take more active steps to make sure you're eliminating the attachment and you should do that with all your relationships and you should actively be working towards eliminating craving desire attachment in all your relationships but just know that some relationships may not fully extinguish the craving, desire, attachment until the person actually dies. That's just the way that it sometimes works. And if your mind is highly discontent when your parents get sick or when you think they're going to die, this is an indication that there's still attachment there. And you just have to keep working on that. So the feelings of nostalgia, the way you described it, Max, that would be an attachment if the mind is longing for pleasant feelings of the past, then that's an attachment because the mind is not rooted in the present moment. It's longing for these feelings in the past, Now, just talking over things from the past. You know, that's not necessarily indication of an attachment. Like for an example, my son brought up the other day about one time when I took him to Bangkok about three or four years ago, I was on a way to Bangkok and he was interested to come with me. And I said, okay, you can come with me. I'll, I'll fly you down there with me and then come back in a couple of days. And we went and told his mom and his mom just went berserk. Like she was, you know, he was still pretty young. He was only maybe like four years old at the time. And she was not happy with that whatsoever. And he reminded me about that. He's like, daddy, do you remember when mommy was attached to me when you tried to take me to Bangkok and her mind became really discontent? when you wanted to take me to Bangkok. So when he was talking about that and I was discussing it with him, we were just discussing the situation and we were just like, yeah, do you remember that? I was like, yeah, I remember that. And I was like, yeah, but she's completely different now, right? Like you you can go anywhere you want and she's not attached to you. Yeah, she's really improved. So we were just chit-chatting like that. So that's not nostalgia where we were kind of longing for that same experience. We were just discussing the past situation and kind of saying, wow, like mom's made all this progress of not being so attached to her son. But if you're talking with siblings or other people and you're kind of remembering when you were children and saying, yeah, things were so good back then and now life's so difficult and, you know, too bad we aren't children again. And, you know, that would be great if we all live together. And, you know, this is like the mind's missing the past. This is discontentedness. We don't talk about missing things much. We haven't done that in this group learning program. But if if you used to live in one particular place and the mind is missing that location and the people that are there, then that's discontentedness because it has this longing and strong eagerness to live in that location again or to be with those people again. So if you're having nostalgic feelings thinking about the past with siblings for example and longing for the days where you guys could go around and you know kick cans down the street and be dirty and do different things and you know that becomes a pleasant feeling that the mind's holding on to this is craving desire attachment for these past experiences and you have to let that go or else the mind's going to be discontent because it's missing this past experiences rather than just being satisfied with what is. That's part of how I describe this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, is just being satisfied with what is, being satisfied with the present moment. Not longing for the past or longing for the future, just satisfied with what is.
2: Yeah, speaking of nostalgia, one thing I've found with nostalgia is it has this kind of idealistic quality to it it looks back at the past and goes oh that was so good that was so perfect even though i know full well that at the time there were moments when i was hungry irritable tired discontent in whatever way i know full well it wasn't perfect at all and for some reason when you view it in the past it has this almost heavenly quality to it and i think that's the nature of attachment is to oversell its positives (laughs) and its negatives and I, i certainly have found that with nostalgia in my own case
1: this is the language that we use right in modern day we say the grass is always greener on the other side right that's longing that's strong eagerness the grass is always greener on the other side instead of being satisfied with what is the mind will oftentimes want to go over the fence because it thinks the grass is greener on the other side But then once you get to the other side and you acquire whatever that is, the mind might be happy for a period of time based on the condition that it crossed over the fence and now it thinks that the grass is greener over here. But the longer you stand there, you realize, oh, the grass here isn't as green as I thought it was. I don't really like it here. This is how the impermanent nature of the mind it sets up itself for failure. It thinks if it just crosses the fence, and gets to the grass that is greener on the other side. It thinks that that's what it needs, but then eventually it realizes, oh, the grass over there is actually greener. And now it wants to go over there, and it wants to go over there, and it wants to go over there. This is the very definition of craving, desire, attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness. And it's just setting up the mind for failure because it's constantly seeking fulfillment externally rather than realizing that it can actually be satisfied with what is and just be peaceful calm serene and content with joy just right now in the present moment it doesn't need all this longing and eagerness to be content and i'll just add to that because the mind is seeking happiness and it's looking for that happiness that's why it keeps having this outward searching it keeps looking for the next thing that's going to make it happy and as soon as it gets that then after a while that wears off and it wants the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and that's why as long as there's craving desire attachment as long as there's this longing with a strong eagerness the mind will never become inwardly content because it's always looking external for happiness rather than looking inward for contentedness
2: Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time.
1: Okay, so number four is what is our purpose in life? What is the purpose of our human existence? This is a common one. The short answer to this is our purpose is there is no purpose, right? There is no purpose to this human life. We're all here and we've become this kind of all-powerful being on the planet and we feel like there should be some importance like you know i go to work every day i wake up i wash the dishes i take a shower i do this i do that and it just sometimes seems like you know what's the real purpose and this is the ego kind of craving significance or importance in this life whereas if you look back to prehistoric humans prehistoric humans they didn't really crave in my view they didn't really crave what is our importance here, right? Like 2 million years ago or 4 million years ago or 6 million years ago, when humans kind of first started to evolve, they weren't thinking about what their importance is, they were just thinking about how do we survive, right? How do we live peacefully together and how do we survive this existence? Because when they stepped outside their cave, there's lots of large creatures around that could do damage to them pretty readily. So the human ego was pretty well in check because there were lots of beasts and creatures in the world that were much more dominant than human beings. And those beings could kind of take us off the planet pretty quickly with a swipe of a paw or you know attacking us or what have you. So humans knew as we evolved long, long time ago that we weren't the biggest, baddest creature. They were just trying to peacefully coexist with some gathering of food and, you know, helping each other and trying to figure out how to keep themselves warm with clothing and, you know, how do we make fire and these kind of things, right? But it's only now that we've kind of like knocked down all the, you know, big creatures in the world where we're kind of like this dominant creature. And it's like, well, you know, what's our real purpose here? And You know, it's kind of hard sometimes for people to hear, like, there is no purpose. This is just coming from the ego. The ego wants importance, it craves importance, it thinks there should be some significance. But if every single one of us died right now, like, if there was just something that just completely took out humanity, who would be sad? Who would be upset? Who would grieve that all of humanity is gone? The answer is no one, right? The birds, the monkeys, the whales the sea, they wouldn't be miserable because humans are gone. They would probably actually benefit from our extinction, right? Would the sun and the moon still come up and set every day if humans were gone? Sure, right? But the human ego, we think that somehow the world revolves around us, right? This is one of the reasons why some people think that We are the only creatures in the universe or in the galaxy, right? It's like there's only human existence, there's only living creatures on Earth, right? That's a pretty egotistical way to think. Of course there's aliens. People debate this all the time: whether there's creatures and beings on other planets. Of course there are, right? If there was only beings on Earth, then that means the beings are permanently on Earth and there's permanence. There is no permanence. That means that we are the only creatures in the entire solar system or the entire uh, universe. That's not true. There's beings other places. Of course there are. And this is one of the reasons why people become so shocked. If they hear about creatures from other places coming to visit our planet, they're shocked because they think that we should be the only ones, but we're not right? There is no purpose here. If we need a purpose, the purpose is that we need to attain enlightenment so that we can end this cycle of rebirth, right? We're constantly being reborn and all of these animal existences that we've experienced in the past, potentially some of us have experienced human existences in the past, but we just keep being reborn because of this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. And when we get rid of that and we extinguish that, which involves dissolving the ego, when we do that, then we won't be reborn again. And we won't come back to this life of nothing, this life of no purpose. We've filled our life with hobbies and activities and occupations and relationships and know we go shopping we go to movies we go to all these different things to occupy our time while we're in this existence but there's no overarching purpose to our existence in this life and getting in touch with that and understanding that can actually be helpful to eliminating the ego because if the ego is craving importance and significance by knocking that down and saying no there is no significance there is no importance we're all just essentially sustaining our life. We go to work and we help people and we do these things and we buy groceries and we you know, clean our bodies and we're just sustaining life. We're no different than the squirrel that's out there in the woods that's washing itself, that's eating, that's you know running around and doing different things. We're different in terms of we can cultivate our consciousness and we can become more human. But in terms of our daily activity, We're doing all the same things and we've kind of filled in the voids because now we don't have to go hunt and gather and do all the things that we did during prehistoric times. So we have more time on our hands. So we have these sporting activities and these hobbies and relationships and entertainment to kind of fulfill our time on this planet. But there is no overarching purpose to this human life other than to attain enlightenment so that we don't have to keep repeating and being reborn over and over again any questions on this
2: i think david a lot of what we call purpose in life we we think of us of as a kind of progress like our technological progress a lot of what we do when we go to work is sustaining our life but it's also moving things in a way that we perceive as moving forward and i was interested to ask you whether there is anything inherently wholesome about that that we have achieved a kind of progress or whether that is just an attachment, whether we just crave growth, economic growth, technological growth, or maybe it's a bit of both.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, we call economic growth, right? Like one aspect of the economy is inflation, right? We kind of all understand that every year prices kind of go up by about 3%. Well, why? It's because people still have craving, right? People are craving more money. So everybody starts to raise their prices on all the different goods and services. That's the only reason why prices go up because of people's craving. That's what drives economics. That's is craving is because people have this craving. One of the reasons why Thailand's economy Isn't the same as like an American economy is because here in Thailand, people don't have the excessive craving for goods. There's not this consumerism that's part of society here. So the economy doesn't turn over the way that like an American economy does with all the craving that's there. So, all this economy and you know, goals that we have in life, sure, you know, we can have goals, we can look to pursue important things. We can look to help our community in certain ways. We can try to help others in our life. But in terms of like purpose of human existence, there's really no purpose to this human existence. We look for purpose and we try to create purpose and we can do beneficial things in this life that helps humanity to evolve and helps humanity to grow, kind of what you're talking about, forward progress. So we can do things to benefit humanity, but that's not necessarily our purpose. Not everyone in the world is going to run out with a flag and say, okay, everybody follow me. We're going to implement this social change in the world. You know, some people just come into the world, they do their job, they sustain their life, they live a peaceful life, they eat they cook they buy clothing they have a few friends and eventually as they age they die you know they're not so eager to leave their mark on the world which oftentimes is what we're taught and that's one of the reasons why i put this in the book is because oftentimes in western culture we're kind of driven to leave our mark on society or we somehow have to fulfill this purpose well if your mind has some ultimate purpose that you're holding in the mind and you feel like you need to fulfill this purpose before you die, then trying to fulfill that purpose is a craving, is a desire, is attachment. It's a longing with a strong eagerness. And because of craving, we know how craving works, you might have a certain purpose in your mind, and then once you get to it at, say, age 30 or 35, then you're gonna increase it. You're gonna say, well, now I wanna be here. And now there's more craving and desire to get there. And you're just going to keep moving it where you got to kind of have to just be comfortable with just existing, that I'm just going to exist. And sure, I'm going to provide benefit to the world. Sure, I'm going to be helpful in certain ways. But if you're always looking for this purpose, that's going to be a moving target. And you're always going to have this longing and strong eagerness to try to fulfill this overarching purpose. And you're never going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content because that purpose is going to keep changing because of impermanence. So if you just get rid of the whole idea that there's some purpose behind your existence, that there is some purpose here, if you just get rid of that altogether and say, you know what, I'm just sustaining my life and I'm just existing and I'm going to work on this path to enlightenment. And along that path, Sure, I'm going to be benefiting my community. I'm going to be benefiting the people around me. That's how I'm going to sustain my life. But I don't need to hold this you know, ultimate purpose to fulfill before I die. Because if you do, then you're not going to be able to extinguish that craving, desire, attachment, which means your mind's going to be unenlightened and there's going to be rebirth.
2: Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time.
1: Okay, so let's go to number five, which is what significance can i apply to dreams this is a really straightforward one basically none you know if you're having dreams that's something that the mind's producing during sleep there's all kinds of different people that will do dream interpretations and for every single person that you ask to interpret your dreams you're going to get multitude of different responses And that is problematic because if we're looking for meaning in the dream, a dream is not reality. Awakening the mind to enlightenment is you need to live with the mind in the present moment to be able to understand true reality. Whereas if the mind is seeking and longing and has this eagerness to understand this dream, well, once you awake, the dream is in the past and it's not true reality. So there's no reason to seek importance in the dream and understand what is the meaning of this dream. Also, if you've had a bad dream, so to speak, when you wake up, you've got to put that to the side and you've got to cut it off, right? Just like we teach in meditation and we teach with right effort about a daily life how to let go of thoughts, you have to be able to do that with dreams too because some people can awake from a dream be very disturbed about what happened in the dream well if you recognize that the dream isn't true reality that it's in the past then just let it go cut it off and just reside in the present moment don't have a longing and a strong eagerness for dream interpretation because who's to say who's right and who's wrong you know if we're searching for meaning in dreams then the mind isn't in the present moment and it's not looking at true reality It's looking at this thing in the past that isn't true reality. And you've got to eliminate that from the mind. What you'll notice is as the mind awakens more and more to enlightenment, you might notice that you actually dream less and less. You might even go through a period of time where you don't dream at all for many, many years. And that's part of the mind coming into the present moment and not being attached to the past or not longing for the future it will oftentimes eliminate dreams from the mind, and that's somewhat normal. So don't be surprised if dreams are gone for several months or years out of the mind. But then also don't be surprised if they come back as well. So dreams by themselves aren't an indication of anything whatsoever. It's just what the mind is doing while it's sleeping. So just leave it to the side and don't try to find significance in dreams. Okay. Let's move to the next question, which is number six. Can I be a Buddhist without believing in rebirth? Well, as I shared throughout this program and with all the students is you should never believe in anything whatsoever. Belief isn't going to liberate the mind. Belief isn't going to help you in attaining enlightenment because the mind can believe whatever it wants. But in order to awaken the mind the mind has to be able to see the truth through learning the teachings applying them in life then you see what is the truth and then you gain wisdom so it's only wisdom that will liberate the mind to attain enlightenment that's how you awaken the mind is through wisdom not belief so don't believe anything at all this rebirth teaching it's usually a big challenging one for a Western audience, because we were all pretty much brought up thinking that we only get one life and then we die. And we're kind of judged on everything we did that entire life of whether we go to a good place or a bad place. And that's the way that the mind has been conditioned growing up all these years. Well, you need to remove that condition and realize that that's not how this all works. But whether you understand that right now at this moment or not, it doesn't matter. You can still learn and practice these teachings and kind of set the whole rebirth question to the side. Because what happened in the past with all the different lives that you've lived in the past, it's in the past. It has no effect on your life right now. What may or may not happen in the future at the end of this life has no barrier what you do right now in this life at all. So what happened in the past is in the past. The future hasn't even happened yet. You don't even know if you're going to be reborn or not. So you don't really have to address and pursue this whole rebirth question at the very beginning. You should learn and practice a lot of the teachings and progress in your practice. And at some point, if you would like to kind of tackle the whole rebirth thing, you can do that. One of the ways that this happens is people oftentimes, as the mind is awakening, you may observe past lives. There's people who are studying with me now who have been contacting me and letting me know that they are starting to observe past lives and they have a lot of description about what's happened in their past lives. This is completely normal, but even if you start getting that kind of input, it doesn't really affect the fact that you need to learn and practice right now. The only thing that observing past lives does is it just confirms for you that this whole cycle of rebirth thing is true 100%. But you don't need to know that from the very beginning to actually start learning and practicing. So you can absolutely learn and practice these teachings without understanding rebirth. It's a gradual process of awakening the mind and learning these as you go, and you're not gonna have all the answers at the very beginning and it's going to take time for you to learn and understand these. This whole idea of being a Buddhist or not, which we're going to talk about in number 10, being a Buddhist is a label. It's a categorization. For a long time, people asked me if I was Buddhist, and I just said, you know, what's a Buddhist? Who determines what a Buddhist is and what a Buddhist isn't, right? That's just a category or a label. I consider myself a practitioner of Gautama Buddha's teachings but even Gautama Buddha himself in my view wasn't a Buddhist because the word Buddhist that term that category of being a Buddhist didn't exist until after Gautama Buddha's life he discovered teachings that he shared and he said this will lead to a better way of life after he died people came up with the idea of okay you're a Buddhist you're a Christian you're a Hindu You're a Muslim, right? And we've kind of labeled people as being one thing or another. In my view, dropping all these labels is actually the best thing. Just see each other as human beings, that's the best way. So this whole question about can I be Buddhist without believing in rebirth? The answer is yes, absolutely. You may or may not consider yourself to be Buddhist, and that's fine. There's no one who determines what a Buddhist is or isn't. And this whole rebirth question is something that oftentimes gets understood much later in your practice. So definitely focus on learning and practicing the teachings. That's what's going to lead to liberation of the mind. Okay, number seven, we are here discussing reincarnation versus rebirth. So the question is, what is reincarnation and rebirth? Are they the same thing? This is one of the misunderstandings of Gotama Buddha's teachings. This could have easily been in the previous chapter, but I was addressing other things in that chapter about misunderstandings of Gotama Buddha's teachings. This is a huge misunderstanding. There's many people who think Gotama Buddha taught reincarnation because there's a lot of Buddhists who talk about reincarnation. There's a lot of people who say that they're practicing the Buddhist teachings and they talk about reincarnation but Gautama Buddha himself never talked about reincarnation. He never taught reincarnation. He taught rebirth or the cycle of rebirth. In Pali it's called samsara. Okay let's talk about the difference. Reincarnation which Gautama Buddha didn't teach is based on a permanent soul or a permanent spirit or a permanent entity that moves from one life to another. There's a new existence, but it's essentially the same soul that's moving from existence to existence. This is reincarnation. Okay. This conflicts with Gotama Buddha's teachings on impermanence and it conflicts with his teachings on non-self that there is no permanent self. This is one of the ways that you know he didn't teach reincarnation. It also conflicts with his undeclared teachings because he never declared whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. He never declared that teaching. So reincarnation conflicts with impermanence, it conflicts with non-self, and it conflicts with his undeclared teachings of whether there is or isn't a soul. There are no contradictions of Gautama Buddha's teachings. So whenever you see something that contradicts with his teachings, then you know it's not part of his teachings. So reincarnation conflicts with three aspects of his teachings. That's one of the ways you know that he didn't teach it. But if you study his actual teachings from the Pali Canon, he talks about the cycle of rebirth. What rebirth is, is that it's a constant cycle of of beings being reborn into five different realms based on whether or not they have craving. So at the time of death, if somebody has craving, then that's the fuel that leads to the next rebirth. So if there's a longing with a strong eagerness, i.e. the person hasn't attained enlightenment, at death, then they will be reborn. Where they're reborn, in which realm, and in what condition they're reborn into, is based on karma of that life. But when there's rebirth, it's a new existence. It's a new being. So while we call this the cycle of rebirth, there actually isn't anything that's being reborn. I think a better way of describing this is the cycle of new existence because each individual existence is a new existence it's a new body or if it's one of the formless realms it's a formless being it's a new either formless or form being and it's a new consciousness it's completely new what's moving forward is the craving whatever craving exists that's being moved forward into the new being so if you think of the consciousness as a cardboard box There's cardboard box A and cardboard box B, or another way to say that is existence A and existence B. With existence A at death, if they're still craving, that's going to be the fuel which creates conditions that there is going to be a new existence. That craving from existence A with residual memories of the previous existences is going to move forward into existence B, into this new cardboard box. So it's a new existence, but there's still craving and there's still residual memories from the previous lives. So in your current consciousness, in your current mind right now, you have awareness and understanding of what's happened in this particular life. But as you awaken and the mind becomes more and more enlightened, It's not uncommon for people to start remembering through these residual memories past existences that they experienced, okay? But it's a new existence. This is the cycle of rebirth or the cycle of new existence, okay? It's not reincarnation. So they're two completely different things. Any questions here?
2: I'm interested to know, David, if as a result of only the craving and the memories being carried forward, are there other things that can tend to reappear such as personality traits, certain temperaments, and also what about maybe genetics and even to some extent physical appearance, are these things that can appear carried on?
1: Nope, none of those things carry forward. The only thing that carries forward is craving and residual memories it's a completely new form or formless being. It's completely new. The consciousness is completely new. So the cycle of new existence. And one of the things that you may understand or I will share with you now is that in this life that you're currently in, you've got craving from this life, but you also have some craving from previous lives or else you wouldn't have been reborn. So there's definitely craving for previous lives that you're just not aware that it comes from previous lives. One of the things that I share with people is when I first got out of college, I purchased this condo in America, and it was a fairly new condo, but I had this enormous craving to like remodel the whole condo. And I like ripped out walls, I ripped out carpet, I ripped out tiles and, wallpaper and all these different things. And I literally, over the course of a couple of years, it was a 700 square foot condo and I pretty much redid the whole thing. And I'd never have been trained as a carpenter or kind of skilled labor of any of those kind of things, but I just had this overwhelming desire and craving to do this. And at the time I was just like, oh, I'm just gonna be handy and I'm just gonna do it and I'm gonna learn. And it was just something for me to do. I didn't understand until the last few years when I eventually saw previous lives that I realized the life right before this, I was essentially a carpenter, you know, a woodworker. and This is where this craving came from. And there's other cravings from the other previous lives that I've had too, because I saw two previous human lives and a whole bunch of animal lives. But this is just one example how you're doing certain things in this life right now based on cravings from your previous lives, and you're just not aware that that's what the case is. So when you hear people say that you're affected by your gamma or decisions that you've made in your previous lives, you're affected by that gamma in this life, what's actually happening is the craving from those previous lives are coming into this life now. And now the decisions that you're making in this life based on those cravings is what's producing the karma. That's what's producing the results. So this craving from the previous life that I had before this to remodel the condo, that's the craving. One of the ways that people often extinguish cravings is to fulfill it. So by remodeling that condo, I fulfilled that craving, but even still, even two years ago, I actually started creating a boat. I designed a boat in Thailand. You know, I live in the mountains. There's hardly any water around here, but I just had this desire a couple of years ago to build a boat. And I spent two or three months finding all the different wood and all the supplies in Thailand and shipping it in from all these different places. And I started laying out this boat and designing this boat and I've put it together and I've got it pretty much complete out in my carport. And that again is from that craving. But the reason why that boat is sitting there is because I made decisions in this life because of those decisions. That's why that boat is sitting there, but it's based on craving from previous life right? It's that craving that's come forward. So there are certain things that happen to you in this life that people say it's gamma from your previous life. But in reality, what it is, is it's the craving that's come forward in this life. You're operating and making decisions based on that craving. And that's why certain things are happening to you in this life that you may not understand 100% based on craving, anger, and ignorance in this life. So anything that's happened in the previous life, that's done and over with, but it's that craving in this life that is causing certain wholesome or unwholesome results based on what's been transferred forward into this new existence.
2: Right, so it doesn't, for example, mean that if we happen to be, say we, but if if in that previous existence, that being was very gregarious, That we're necessarily going to be gregarious in this life however there might be certain elements of craving that give rise to that Uh, and there might be certain experiences and also our parental influence through dna and also the way we're brought up that might result in that but it's not because the personality trait was carried (laughs) through exactly
1: no but see what is a personality trait right personality trait all has to do with craving anger and ignorance right so that's what's being transferred forward is the craving so if someone has a craving for intelligence they pursue intelligence in their previous life and they never extinguished that in their previous life that craving moves forward in this life they might be doing the same thing in this life pursuing intelligence and you're none the wiser and you're just okay yeah it's a good thing to do let me just pursue and have this longing for intelligence and it doesn't mean that that's wrong or that's bad it's just that the person has this longing and strong eagerness for intelligence and that can be a craving a desire an attachment that's why the buddhist teachings aren't about what's right or wrong it's about if there's longing if there's strong eagerness it's going to lead to discontentedness So we can pursue intelligence with a longing and strong eagerness, which is going to lead to discontentedness, or we can pursue intelligence at a stable, steady, consistent pace, become more intelligent without the longing and the strong eagerness, and the mind's not going to be discontent. So that's why we can't say the pursuit of intelligence is an attachment. It's not that the pursuit of... intelligence is an attachment or a craving it's how the mind relates to it whether there's this longing or strong eagerness
2: I was just saying when you said you know what's a personality trait immediately I thought well it's impermanent <laughs> it's it's an it's idea it's just yeah. a way that we categorize a certain set of behaviors but even I think once the defilements are gone the craving the anger the ignorance are gone Is it correct to say that certain aspects of one's makeup, the way the mind works still get carried on? So obviously the body still exists, the mind still exists, and maybe different enlightened beings would all have different quirks. They're not all going to be the same, right? There's going to be different tendencies among them, even though they've abandoned those three poisons.
1: If you abandon the three poisons and you're with 10 enlightened people, they're all going to be very different. What's going to be consistent is their mind is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. That's going to be consistent. But whether somebody likes to tell jokes or not, whether somebody talks about certain things or not, everyone's going to be very different in what their activities are, what their goals are. Some people attain enlightenment and they're okay, they're done and they just focus on their own life and they choose to be a taxi driver i've met taxi drivers that are pretty close to enlightenment i've met monks who are enlightened and i've met business people who are enlightened right i've met psychotherapists who are enlightened right Or pretty close to it so the commonality is peaceful calm serene and content with joy but how they conduct their life and what they do, and what they find meaningful or not, and how they choose to benefit the world is totally up to them and completely different from one enlightened person to another. It's just that their mind is never discontent. Their mind is never discontent and they can pursue and get very good results in everything they do, their personal relationships, their professional relationships. There's never discontentedness in those because they're not attached. They know how to practice right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Their life is just completely peaceful. It's almost as like time stands still for enlightened people because they're just always in the present moment. It's like time stands still. But everyone's doing whatever they find valuable for the world and for themselves. And not everyone's going to choose to be a teacher or not everyone's going to choose to be a business person. There's all different kinds of people who are enlightened. But what you'll see is the peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. And it'll just be very peaceful and very calm.
2: Got it. Thanks, David. We've got a question from Mercia. We might want to leave this to the end or to Wednesday, but I'll ask it now and get your thoughts. She says, how did the memory of past lives appear to you, David?
1: So as I was just conducting my life, I was having certain incidences that were happening. And I was talking as if I was these other beings. And I didn't remember and I didn't recall that that's what I was doing. I was just having conversations with various people and at different times in the conversation, I would start talking as if I was the other person. But at that particular moment, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't even remember it. It wasn't until two, three, four years later that I started becoming really dedicated to the teachings that I started recalling and remembering conversations from one year, two year, three year, four year previous where I started to observe like, whoa, that's why that conversation happened where I didn't remember it up to that point. So as I started focusing on practice, the memory started coming back to conversations I was having in this life as if I was these other beings. And I also had an experience where all the animals started flashing through my mind. And this is before I ever studied anything about Gautama Buddha's teachings related to the cycle of rebirth. So it's not like I learned the teachings and that conditioned my mind to have these experiences. I actually didn't believe in rebirth until I had these experiences. When I was seeing all these animals coming through the mind, it was like a film strip, just countless animals I actually kind of got a little freaked out. I was like, whoa, 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 oh my goodness, like look, all these animals, oh, 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 And it just like flowing, flowing, flowing. And then from that point, a whole lot of other things happened in my life that allowed me to then recall certain things that happened in this life that I didn't remember from this life. And more and more and more as I was recalling these things that had occurred over multiple years, I realized like all of this was connected to the cycle of rebirth. And the only way that I knew that is once I had this big experience of seeing all these animals on this film strip, it motivated me to really get into the teachings of the Buddha. And as I started learning about his teachings and got into the books that were actually his words, he started to describe what it was like for us in previous lives. And the experiences that I was having, the memories that I was having, he was talking about it in the book. So his description of the cycle of rebirth was actually explaining the situation and the experiences that I had. So when he talked about we've all had countless rebirths, the Buddha talks about this. He said, we've had so many rebirths in the past. It would be impossible to find a being that lives today that hasn't been our mother father brother sister or some other relative because we've had so many countless rebirths he said we've had so many countless rebirths in the animal realm in these other realms that the milk from our mother in those previous births is more voluminous than all the water and all the seas of the entire world so the milk that we drank from our mother had more volume than all the water and all the sea so essentially he's just saying there's these countless 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 rebirths and that's exactly what i experienced when the thoughts of the animals were going through my mind so i had these experiences first and then his teachings the more i dove into them explained exactly what i was experiencing in this life so that's how it happened for me and it was related to just the mind opening up and awakening more and more but you shouldn't have a longing or eagerness for this right if you desire to see your past lives or you have a craving to see your past lives it's going to lead to discontentedness just know that the cycle of rebirth is truth don't believe it but i can tell you with 100 percent certainty it's truth just set it to the side someday you may actually Observe your past lives and you'll know that it's actually true. But if you have a longing or an eagerness to see them and you don't see them, then you're going to have to extinguish that craving. But it's good to understand the cycle of rebirth and understand how it works. Even though I kind of knew that the Buddha taught rebirth, I didn't know what he taught and what it entailed and all of the things, but I kind of always knew he taught the cycle of rebirth. And I just always used it as motivation because I felt like while I've had some good experiences in this life, I don't want to keep repeating life, right? So I used it as motivation to learn and practice the teachings. And that's how I used rebirth up until the point where I actually observed past lives. And I knew that it was truth. I just used it as motivation. Like I don't want to repeat any kind of life. I don't want to ever be reborn again. So that's how you might choose to use this whole cycle of rebirth as motivation and encouragement to learn and practice to attain enlightenment.
2: Okay, we have no more questions.
1: Okay, the eighth question is what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha? And is there a ceremony to do so? So taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, let's talk about what a refuge is. A refuge is protection or some kind of protection from harm. Right. So oftentimes you'll hear people say, take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or take refuge in the triple gem or take refuge in the triple jewel. Right. This is essentially meaning protect the mind by seeking refuge in the Buddha, having confidence in the Buddha, learning and practicing the teachings and receive guidance from the community or the sangha right so that's what taking refuge in the buddha the dhamma the sangha is is looking for protection of the mind to develop this unshakable mind by developing confidence in the buddhist teachings by learning and practicing his teachings and by receiving guidance from the community or the sangha well that's what it means to take refuge in the triple gem or the triple jewel Or taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Since the Buddha's death, people have come up with ceremonies that they say that you are now taking refuge in the triple gem or the triple jewel or the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, as you guys should know, if you've been studying with me long enough, is the Buddha never taught right rituals and ceremonies. So these ceremonies that people are doing, while it might be kind of a moment for you to kind of dedicate or commit your interest to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the ceremony itself isn't doing anything at all. There is no ceremony, there is no rites or rituals that are going to change the condition of the mind. If you're going to develop confidence in the Buddha, you have to do that through learning his teachings and seeing that they're actually working with guidance from the Sangha. That's how you take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Just going into a temple and doing a 20, 30 minute or hour or two hour ceremony to take refuge, you haven't really done anything. You just participated in some type of rite ritual or ceremony. It hasn't changed the mind. So the way to protect the mind or take refuge is to develop this confidence in the Buddha, learn the teachings, see that they're benefiting your life and receive guidance from someone in the Sangha, a teacher. That's what it means to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And whether you choose to do a ceremony or not is totally up to you. I've never done anything like that because there's no need to, but there's certainly people that choose to do that and you know that's their personal choice. Number nine is why is enlightenment permanent? We understand impermanence, that there's constant change. There's not a steady fixed state. However, enlightenment is permanent. Okay, it's pretty much the only thing that is permanent. Well, let's understand what the Buddha actually said. What he said is all conditioned thoughts are impermanent. All conditioned thoughts and feelings, for example, are impermanent. They usually translate this to phenomena all mental phenomenon are impermanent okay so everything in the mind is impermanent that's what the buddha said he didn't say everything is impermanent this is one of the misunderstandings some people think the buddha said everything's impermanent but he never said that. He said all conditioned phenomena are impermanent, or all conditioned thoughts, feelings, ideas, perceptions, opinions, views, all of these things are impermanent. Okay? So, what is this process to attaining enlightenment? What is this path? Well, this path to enlightenment is removing conditions that cause painful feelings pleasant feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So painful feelings are things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears. Pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, elation. Neither painful nor pleasant feelings are things like boredom, loneliness, shyness, things like this, okay? So What we're doing through the process of enlightenment is we're training the mind to eliminate conditioned thoughts, conditioned feelings, conditioned ideas that are based on the conditions of craving, anger, and ignorance, the self, and the ego. By removing the conditions, the unconditioned mind, the enlightened mind, which is unconditioned, it is permanent. This peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind is permanent. Because once you learn the teachings and you gain the wisdom that the mind is now peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy through this training of the mind, the mind will never revert back to the way it used to be. Because the wisdom is there and you'll never believe what you believed in the past. You'll never treat people with hostility again because you know where that leads. You'll never speak with wrong speech again. Once you perfect right speech, you'll never go back to speaking harshly again because you know where that leads to harmful things. It's just like I could never convince you that Santa Claus exists because you already know that that was a belief Now you have the wisdom that Santa Claus doesn't exist and your mind is unshakable on that. So once you learn all of these truths and you gain wisdom, you train the mind to this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. Based on this wisdom, the mind will never unlearn that wisdom and go back to functioning based on conditions So let's talk about conditioned thoughts, feelings, and ideas. What a conditioned thought or a conditioned feeling is, is I am happy because I got a new car. This new car is the source of my happiness. Based on this condition of the new car, I am now happy. That's a conditioned feeling that the happiness Is coming from the condition of this new car but eventually the feeling of this new car starts to dissipate and now the happiness with this new car dissipates because it's impermanent this happiness is impermanent because it's based on the condition of this new car that's what the unenlightened mind does it looks for conditions And because of those conditions, it has painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. But as the mind becomes more and more trained and it recognizes impermanence, it understands discontentedness, it understands non-self, it understands the Four Noble Truths, it's practicing the Eightfold Path, it's practicing the Five Precepts. understands the three poisons it's eliminating the ten fetters it's practicing the seven factors of enlightenment all these various teachings moving this mind to this enlightened mind where it's in the middle peaceful calm serene and content with joy an enlightened mind no longer looks to fulfill itself externally through conditions it might need to buy a new car But it doesn't get excited and enlightened mind isn't going to get excited about buying a new car and putting a lot of importance in that new car it's just gonna i need transportation so let me get a new car and then if the car gets in an accident okay the car's in an accident that's impermanent it needs to get fixed but it's not going to latch the peaceful calm serene and content mind with joy it's not based on any condition When the thoughts are conditioned, now the mind is going to move through painful, pleasant, and neither painful nor pleasant feelings. But when the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy is based on no conditions whatsoever, it's just naturally peaceful, naturally calm, naturally serene, naturally content, and naturally joyful without anything just satisfied with what is, because it's in that mental state without any conditions, the mind is not affected by impermanence. The mind is no longer affected by impermanence because it's unconditioned. It's just naturally peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. So this is why enlightenment is permanent because enlightenment is attained through wisdom, through eliminating impermanent conditions from the mind and it's unconditioned it's been trained through wisdom to be unconditioned therefore it just resides naturally peaceful calm serene and content with joy and having done so it will never revert back to this unenlightened state okay number 10 here is how do i become a buddhist okay we talked about this a little bit in the previous question There's no one who defines what a Buddhist is or what a Buddhist isn't. A Buddhist is a category. It's a label. It's something that people have come up with at some given point in time. And they said, okay, you're a Buddhist. You're a Christian. You're a Hindu. You're a Muslim. There's no one that has a description of what a Buddhist is unless you say someone who's learning and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha maybe that person's considered a Buddhist. But there is no formal way to become a Buddhist. There's never a time where someone should walk up to you and say, are you ready to convert to being Buddhist? Right? This doesn't happen, at least in my experience. I've never had anyone do that. Because there's nothing to do to become a Buddhist or convert to Buddhism. It doesn't happen. It's just learning and practicing the teachings to a better way of life. Where this question really comes to, I feel, is how do I become enlightened? Because that's the real question here, right? So this question of how do I become Buddhist is really just someone trying to figure out what I'm about to become and let me figure out what that is and then I will become that person based on these conditions, Well, our whole goal is to remove all these conditions, all these labels. So what we're really looking to do, learning and practicing Gautama Buddhist teachings is to attain enlightenment. And that is a better question to talk about. How do you attain enlightenment? You need to learn and practice the teachings so that you can see the truth and gain wisdom for yourself through guidance from a teacher. Through gaining this wisdom with guidance from a teacher, you will then independently observe the teachings to be true. That will acquire wisdom. You need to be introduced to the teachings. The teachings need to be shared with you, but then you will independently learn and practice those teachings to see that they're truth, which will then allow you to acquire wisdom. The unenlightened mind will be changed through this wisdom because this newfound wisdom, the mind will start functioning differently than it was before. Where the mind used to get angry, it now will maybe be frustrated. And then where it used to be frustrated, it will get irritated. Then when it's irritated, it will become annoyed. That will essentially dissipate to where the mind will be peaceful. It'll slowly, gradually evolve. It will slowly, gradually awaken to this enlightened mental state through the wisdom of these teachings, of you practicing the teachings determining the truth for yourself that's how you attain enlightenment is through learning and practicing to see these truths that they're in fact truth so that you can gain wisdom and then your mind functions through this newfound wisdom okay any questions on this one
2: we have a question from vashnavi she says sir my father told me you should not think about these things at this young age of 24 Buddhist teachings Buddhism enlightenment you should look at this later in life my father also says you are young and not married also don't think about these things only focus on your studies I'm not understanding why he is telling me this
1: I'm not sure why he's telling you this but I respectfully disagree with your father I feel like the earlier in life that you learn and practice the Buddhist teachings, it's only going to help you in your life to actually create a better and better life for yourself. My son, I started teaching him at about age five, uh, maybe six, started teaching him about Buddhism. And now he's really, really, really improved his life. Prior to me teaching him about Buddhism, he used to talk bad to his mom. Him and his mom used to get into arguments and disagreements, and they would get frustrated at each other. Now, through both of them practicing the teachings, they have a much better relationship, and they never really talk to each other anymore in a bad way. They're just very calm and peaceful with each other, and they just have a really good relationship. And things like my son used to just sometimes cry when he would see his Legos that he made in the morning. He would come up from school and they would be broken or disconnected. He would just cry just because he saw the Legos that they weren't together anymore because he did, his mind didn't understand impermanence. So through training him, even as early as five or six years old, he's had these amazing changes in the way that he processes and looks at the world around him. And this is going to be very impactful for his life because early in life like this, children have very little craving, anger, and ignorance. Well, they actually have a lot of unknowing of true reality, but that can be remedied because they will learn and follow pretty well. And they have very little self and they have very little ego. So the earlier in life that you actually learn and practice these teachings, it actually sets up your life for a much better life for you in the future. During the lifetime of the Buddha, children became enlightened as early as seven years old. So you might want to ask your dad, you know, if the Buddha was teaching young children who, if they attained enlightenment at seven, it means they were probably under training by, you know, four, five, six years old. So if the Buddha was training children that early, then why wouldn't you at the age of 24 be interested in learning and practicing the teachings? Because you're going to make better decisions for your occupations. You're going to make better decisions in your relationships. When you ultimately pick a partner, you're going to make better decisions. And that means it's going to have a better and better results for you in your life. If you go through life making a whole lot of unwholesome decisions and you decide at age 50... To start learning and practicing the teachings then you have 50 years of unwholesome decisions to resolve and work out whereas if you start learning these teachings and awakening the mind to the natural law of gamma now you have a much better life long into the future so let that know about the buddha about him teaching children as early as you know five six seven years old and that if he would be so kind as just let you to learn and do what you feel is best for your life because parents mean really well but parents are oftentimes very attached to their children so if parents are telling their children what to do and kind of impressing upon them that and and sometimes parents can even be a little bit forceful in that that's their attachment that's their craving that's their longing with a strong eagerness for their children to be a certain way but sometimes when our parents aren't practicing these teachings with good wisdom, we have to actually share in a humble way to help dad see, well, dad, you know, you've made your decisions not to practice the teachings yet. But for me, I'm choosing to do this. And hopefully you can find a way to be okay with that. And you have to kind of talk it out. And that's one way of kind of establishing him with more wisdom if you have that kind of relationship where you can maybe share a little bit with him.
2: I think there's some really helpful points there, David, about how whatever it is that Vashnavi's father wants for her, in my opinion, practicing the teachings is only going to help do those things better. Whether it's studying, whether it's finding the right partner, it's only gonna help, you have a daily meditation practice, it's only going to help with your learning should you choose to continue learning with the kind of further further that your dad wants for you. But um, yeah, thanks for that, data. I think there's a lot of people that can benefit from that message.
1: And the key word that you're using there, Max, is what someone's father or mother wants for them, right? Craving, desire, attachment is wants, expectations, obligations, these are all the same thing. So if somebody wants something for you, That's their craving, their desire, their attachment, their longing with a strong eagerness. So if someone's practicing non-attachment, they shouldn't want anything for you. They should like to see you be peaceful. They should be interested in seeing you have a good life, but you making the decisions for what that life entails is completely up to you. And at 24 years old, if your parents are still wanting certain things for you, That's their craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations, obligations. And if you don't do those things, your parents will cause their own discontentedness. They're causing their own discontent mind because they still have craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations, obligations. But you can't be attached to trying to fulfill dad's wants. Because what you're gonna see is dad's wants are gonna change. And if you're just following whatever dad wants, then you aren't fulfilling your own needs in this life. So while we need to respect our parents, if they start putting wants and obligations and expectations on us, you have to identify that as that's their craving, their desire, their attachment. And sure, if you don't do those things, they are going to be discontent But they're causing that discontentness themselves. You're not causing it. You're just choosing to live your life. And it's them, because of their wants, obligations, and expectations, that they're causing their own discontent mind. We have
2: a comment from Deborah on Facebook. She says, David, at 57, I wish I had learned the teachings earlier.
1: Me too. You know, it would have been nice to learn these when I was five years old, like my son, I tell him sometimes like, you're going to have such a great life because at 46, I know all the problems and difficulties I had in my life. And when I learned these teachings and got to the point where I am, you know, one of the first things I was interested in doing is helping my wife and helping my son to learn these better because I was interested in seeing my son not make all the decisions that I made that led to so much discontentedness. So he was very interested to learn. And he learned really, really quickly because his mind at that age is like a sponge. So while he still has a bit of craving and desire and attachment, he understands what those are. And he still doesn't have a real formal meditation practice. It's something that I'm trying to help him work on, but at almost eight years old, he certainly understands impermanence and discontentedness and non-self. He understands the Four Noble Truths. He wouldn't be able to explain it to you, but he's practicing right view. He knows that when he has anger or frustration or irritation or any of that stuff that he might have, he knows it's coming from himself and he's causing it. And he knows about, you know, things like right intention and right speech and right action and all of these things. So yeah, you know, the more that these teachings come into the Western world, we're going to see our culture and the people in the West become more and more peaceful and calm, serene and content with joy. So the earlier that more and more people learn these teachings in life, the more that they can influence and improve our life so that we aren't 57 and 46, and you know, have this life of discontentedness that we experience. But ultimately, that's what motivated us to now get to the point where we are. So that's okay, that's all in the past. But at 24, you know, that's a great time to be learning these teachings and improve your life in amazing ways.
2: Okay, we have a question from Pratik regarding rebirth. Can we remove all the existing conditions for rebirth in this very life? If this is so then why are there four stages to becoming an arahant?
1: yes you can remove all the conditions that cause rebirth because what's causing the rebirth is craving desire attachment this mental longing for strong eagerness for all this different stuff so if the mind is still craving desiring attached to anything at death there will be rebirth so training the mind to eliminate the conditions that cause rebirth, i.e. craving, desire, attachment, is the primary goal of this practice. That's the primary problem that the Buddha discovered is that craving, desire, attachment is what leads to discontentedness of mind. So everybody working towards eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you're going to eliminate your discontent mind and you'll see that you've done that in this life as the mind becomes more and more enlightened. And you'll have the truth for yourself that you're working in that direction because those feelings of anger will go to frustration, irritation, annoyance, a slight dislike, and ultimately the mind will become more and more peaceful. So you can absolutely improve the condition of the mind. That's the whole goal of these teachings. Why are these four stages? because the mind needs training gradually, right? There's this gradual training of the mind. The first stage of enlightenment, there's only three fetters that need to be removed in order to attain that first stage. Then the second stage, you have already removed those first three and you're just thinning the next two. The third stage, you're eliminating all five or you will have eliminated all five of the lower fetters But then to get to the highest stage of enlightenment, which is actually enlightenment, the first three stages, they're not enlightenment, they're just leading up to enlightenment. Once you eliminate all 10 fetters, now the mind is enlightened as an arahant. And there's this gradual progression that you'll see, not just with the four stages of enlightenment, but with the four jhanas as well. There's four jhanas before you get to The four stages of enlightenment, the mind will go through these four jhanas as well. And what all of these are doing for you is helping you to see that you're on the right path. If you're seeing that your mind is just as angry today as it was three years ago, or maybe even more angry, then you know you're not making any progress on this path. You need to find a teacher, you need to find the teachings, you need to have a more dedicated practice. But as you see your anger dissipate, then you know that you're making progress on this path. When your meditation becomes more beneficial and it's producing more results, you feel deeper, more settled, you feel more calm, more relaxed, more peaceful, you know that these teachings are improving the condition of the mind. So you can see it for yourself that these teachings are impactful the more you learn and practice. But if you're not actively learning with a teacher, you're not going to be making that progress. There's so many people in the world that are just out there trying to awaken and become enlightened and they have no teachings, they have no guidance, they have no idea of how to even begin other than just they're supposed to be meditating. And... I see millions of these people on the internet, on social media all the time. And one of the biggest things that I always repeat is, gotta have a teacher. There's only one type of person that could attain enlightenment without a teacher, and that's a Buddha. The last one currently known to the world existed 2,500 years ago. So just by learning and practicing these teachings with a teacher, it's going to drastically improve your ability to learn and practice the teachings, and then experience results. But these results are gradual. That's why we have these four jhanas and these four stages of enlightenment. As you progress through these four jhanas and these four stages of enlightenment, you're not talking to your friends about, yeah, I'm at the first stage, I'm at the second stage, I'm at the third stage, because that's ego. The only reason why we really have these four jhanas and these four stages is it's for personal growth, for personal development, to help you see where you need to go. But you're never professing what you feel to be your stage of enlightenment, because the ego can be there trying to convince you that you're at the third stage of enlightenment when you really haven't even hit the jhanas yet, right? There's people that think they're at the first, second or third stage of enlightenment, but they haven't even gotten into the jhanas yet. So if you're convincing yourself that you are enlightened or that you have attained a certain stage of enlightenment, that's the wrong way to approach this. It's better to just use these stages of enlightenment as kind of a personal guide to help you clue in to the things that you need to be eliminating and when you need to be eliminating them. So for example, the highest stage of enlightenment, those five higher fetters, one of the highest fetters is conceit or arrogance right? You might know that that's what you need to do is eliminate the ego as part of this path. And you're always kind of working on that. But you know that there's these other fetters that you need to eliminate before you even get to that point where you fully eliminated the ego. The ego is kind of like one of the last things to actually go. And it's the easiest thing to pick back up if you even feel like you've let it go. So the Buddha kind of lays out these stages to help you kind of as a guide, a personal guide, so you can see what do I need to focus on first, second, third, and fourth. And that's really all they're for, is to be a personal guide for you and to help you with this gradual progress and gradual progression.
2: Okay, we have no more questions at this time.
1: Okay, the last question here in this part of the book, Frequently Asked Questions, is why are donations of support for teachers of Gotama Buddha's teachings so important? And I broke it down in the book into kind of two main topic areas. The first one is continuation of Gotama Buddha's teachings. The only way that these teachings have continued for over 2,500 years to the point where they're now reaching you is because people have supported the teachings. For the last 2,500 years and longer, people have been offering support of food, of water, of clothing, of shelter, of medical supplies, financial support, time and effort and energy to share these resources with teachers who are then sharing these teachings with the public. The reason why these teachings penetrate into various communities is because the members of the community see it as something interesting and they will pull it into their community. So the only reason why there's Thai Buddhist temples in America is because when the first wave of Thai people went into America right after the Vietnam War in the 1970s, Thai people wanted to have temples in their communities, so they started establishing them. The monks and the ordained people didn't say, put a temple in America. It was the household practitioners that requested for it, and they were willing to support it with their offerings of Food, water, clothing, shelter, medical supplies, financial support. So the only reason why you're actually getting the teachings today right now is because for over 2,500 years, there's this long chain of support where people are offering support to ensure these teachings continue in all the various communities. And the only reason why these teachings are going to penetrate into our community is if you guys pull the teachings into your community through actually supporting the teachings, through providing either financial support or your energy, your effort to help to share these teachings with yourself and with others around you. There's no obligation for you to go out and spread these teachings to other people. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is supporting people like me and other teachers who have dedicated their life and are dedicating their life to sharing the teachings. We need support in order to do that. Because if I was working a career and I was trying to pursue a career in anything, engineering or marketing or business, that would take 50, 60, 80 hours of my day and I wouldn't have the ability to actually prepare these teachings and share them with you but through the support and donations of people that are learning these teachings by you even just contributing $5 a month or $10 a month or $15 a month or you know whatever you decide to contribute that's providing me the ability to pay for food water clothing shelter and a little bit of medical supplies so that then I can contribute and give back to you guys through sharing these teachings which will benefit your life but it's the community that's creating this kind of womb for me in which I don't have to go work at 60 or 80 hour job I can spend 80 hours a week sharing these teachings and that's beneficial to the community and everybody just kind of donates a little bit of money to kind of help in order to continue the teachings within our community. So that's the first reason is like these teachings would only continue to be shared in the world if they are supported by the people in the world who are benefiting from them. So if you watch the YouTube videos, the podcast, if you read the book, if you're learning in the Facebook group on these online classes, it's a really good thing if you choose to support the teacher who's supporting you. Then the second one that I shared here is generosity leads to enlightenment, right? Generosity leads to enlightenment. The reason why is because the primary problem is craving, desire, attachment, the tendency for the mind to hold on. The mind holds on and because it holds on and it has this longing with a strong eagerness, it causes itself to be discontent. The Buddha gave us two remedies in order to train the mind to let go so that it can attain this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, this enlightened mind. The remedies are breathing mindfulness meditation, which is training the mind on a daily consistent basis, and generosity. Generosity by sharing your time, your effort, your energy, your financial resources, by sharing that, it actually leads to enlightenment because you're training the mind to let go. You're training the mind not to be selfish and just selfishly acquire wealth and possessions, but you're sharing it in order to help support the continuation of these teachings. If you were learning these teachings and you never shared with anybody, not even A potato chip with a neighbor or not sharing your time and effort to help other people you would never be able to attain enlightenment you need to create and cultivate generosity in the mind where you're sharing and we're taught this pretty much as kids growing up that we should share we're not explained why but we just know as children that it's a good idea to share but oftentimes as we get older we become more selfish we kind of fold inward and we start to kind of try to hoard things and we think that the more money we have in our bank account that that's going to lead to happiness this condition of money in the bank equals happiness and wealth equals happiness but that's just a condition it just is going to be impermanent and you're not going to be able to sustain it so by sharing with other people around you, whether it's your friends or your family, your co-workers. It doesn't mean you go out and share everything, but once again, you've got to find that middle way. If you shared nothing at all and you became a very selfish, self-centered person, that's not going to lead to enlightenment because you're holding on and the mind is still craving. But if you shared too much and you didn't have the ability to sustain your own life and take care of your own needs, that's not going to lead to enlightenment either. So once again, this topic of the middle way becomes very important where we should share and we should be generous, but we need to find that middle and what makes sense. And by sharing, it leads to enlightenment because it trains the mind to let go. And by sharing with teachers of Gautama Buddha's teachings, you're Improving the condition of the mind by training it to let go, but you're also supporting the continuation of Gautama Buddha's teachings in the world. So that's why we share and provide donations to teachers of Gautama Buddha's teachings.
2: It might be worth David um, just saying as well that if anyone is interested in making donations, that's I, I personally choose to do it through Patreon. That's a good way to do a monthly recurring if anyone's looking to do that. Uh for me having benefited so much from learning with you, David, and practicing these teachings, it feels like the natural thing to do because I understand that it's only going to help sustain that project, this practice, and that's absolutely something I would like to support given how much I've benefited. So thanks, David.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. You know, if every student just gave $5 a month, which, you know, these classes are about two hours over twice a week, so four hours per week, times four weeks that's 16 hours of learning just in these classes alone not to mention all the podcasts and videos and the book and audiobook and things like that but if everyone just gave five dollars a month that's about 20 or 30 cents per hour you know just for these classes so that would be very helpful for me here in thailand and you know your five dollars would go a long way so if you go to patreon.com forward slash support buddha you'll be able to set up kind of a recurring five dollars or fifteen dollars or there's other amounts there too but even just the minimal amount would be really helpful to help me to then focus on sharing these teachings more and more with you and i spend about 80 hours a week to share these teachings and all the different ways that I do throughout the world, sharing them with you and all the other people in the world through all the various resources that I share. And that's the way that I practice generosity, is by sharing my time and my effort and my energy. At one time in my life, I had a lot of money and I used to share that, but now I don't have money, but I have a lot of time, so that's what I share in helping people to learn and practice these teachings. So these are the frequently asked questions that I get as part of teaching, whether it's online or in person or at retreats. These are the questions that are kind of like miscellaneous that didn't really get answered necessarily in the the first part of the book. So here at the end, I chose to put these 11 questions in there, the most common questions. And then the very last thing that's kind of in the book, well, not the last, last thing, but the last kind of content is I describe how to determine if you've attained enlightenment, right? Because that's kind of a thing that people are interested in. Well, you can learn in the book, if you download your free copy or if you have a printed copy, you can look and it talks about how to determine if you've actually attained enlightenment or not. And one of the first things it says there is, don't ever consider yourself to be enlightened. Even if you think that you've actually attained enlightenment, there's really no benefit to determining necessarily that you've attained enlightenment. It's interesting to know, and you'll know that if you follow the guidance in there. But as soon as you tell yourself like, okay, I've attained enlightenment, maybe you have and maybe you haven't. Maybe the ego is there and it wants to tell you you've attained enlightenment, but you really haven't. So now the mind becomes sluggish. And if the mind becomes sluggish or complacent, then for sure you haven't attained enlightenment because you're not practicing the seven factors of enlightenment, which would include having energy and keen investigation of the teachings and joy. So it's interesting to know, and you'll know that you've attained enlightenment when you look at those criteria in the book. And I imagine anybody who's studying with me now, you guys are definitely seeing benefit but it hasn't been long enough for you to actually attain enlightenment yet. This program has been six months long. So while there's been many, many students who's explained to me all the different benefits that they've been experiencing as part of learning and practicing these teachings, you haven't necessarily attained enlightenment yet. It's just too short of a time. But what you should be able to see at this point is your mind is moving in that direction your mind is moving to more peace, calm, serene and content mind with joy because these discontent feelings are starting to soften and become less and less and less. So that shows you that you're on the right path and it's headed in the right direction. But even at some point in time, if you feel like you're meeting all the criteria of having determined that you've potentially attained enlightenment, just don't even believe that. Just continue to pursue more and more wisdom all the time. And of course, if you tell other people that you have attained enlightenment, then people know that you haven't. Because if people are going around telling each other like, yeah, I'm enlightened. Yeah, I'm enlightened. Or, oh, I'm awakened. Or, I've awakened my mind. Well, if someone's telling you that they're enlightened, then there's still pride and there's still ego. So therefore, they can't have attained enlightenment. They may even have a craving or a desire, a longing with a strong eagerness to tell people that they are enlightened. Well, if this exists, then you know that they're not enlightened because they're still craving. And if there's craving, then there can't be enlightenment. So if someone tells me that they're enlightened, I usually reply with, oh yeah, you know, why do you feel that way? And I'll just kind of be curious and interested. Or the other thing I'll do, I'll just be, oh, that's interesting. And I'll just keep on going, like no big deal. The the whole adage is, is before enlightenment, chop wood and carry wood. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry wood, right? There's nobody that's going to, come in with a certificate or a badge and say, oh, this person's now enlightened and you get to walk around with this shiny badge. That's not the way this all works. Even once you feel like you've attained enlightenment, you can actually continue to progress more and more and more. So if somebody feels like I've attained enlightenment and they're done, then the mind becomes complacent. But for the person who understands that There really is no end to this path. You're just learning and gaining more and more wisdom, and you're becoming more and more and more enlightened all the time. Even if you meet those criteria of what an enlightened mind would be, if you just kind of say, okay, that's interesting, and then you just keep pursuing more and more and more and more wisdom, a more enlightened person is never going to consider themselves as being enlightened and just always look for more and more and more and more wisdom, more and more growth, more and more evolution and progress, and never, ever give up and never consider themselves as enlightened because that's kind of dangerous to the mind to allow the mind to become complacent. But I did put that in the book because it's a question that people oftentimes will come up with. I didn't put it as part of a frequently asked question because it's kind of a bigger question than just a frequently asked question. So I've got a section at the end of the book that will help you as you progress. And if you're working with me as a student, there's never a time where I'll kind of tell you, like, all right, now you're enlightened. Because again, you know, the mind is going to perhaps turn off and become complacent. But your teacher will be able to observe in you more and more enlightened qualities coming through. And as you progress, you're going to see that happen for you more and more because the mind's going to become peaceful calm serene and content with joy you will eliminate all these discontent feelings that the unenlightened mind experiences and it's going to be very joyful thing as the mind continues to progress in that direction and gaining more and more wisdom so any other questions before we kind of end today's session
2: well i was just going to say david that as we're coming to the end of the current group learning program and setting up the second run. There are many people here who joined partway through or they only know you for the classes. And I think certainly I found it very helpful. I know that a lot of people have found this very helpful. But what would be great is to maybe do a session where we can learn more about you and your journey. And for those who maybe haven't had the privilege of hanging out with you in Chiang Mai, for example, it might be a really good way to kick off the next group learning program so what are your thoughts
1: on that yeah we could do something like that uh we have one more session scheduled on wednesday on august 5th which is our normal time at 9 p.m Thai time and then whatever time it is in your time zone and we were originally scheduled to do meditation on that day But if you guys want to turn it into a question and answer where you guys can ask me whatever questions you like about my life, I will answer those questions. As you notice that in the six-month learning program, there's never been a time where I kind of dedicated to talking about myself, right? Because there is no self. And that's probably where this question is coming from is you guys haven't really learned about me necessarily in a dedicated way. You know, I've kind of shared some stories about my life a little bit here and there as we've gone, but I really am most interested in focusing on the teachings and helping you guys understand the teachings so that that can benefit your life. So if we have this session where you guys ask me questions, what I would do is I would answer the questions in a way that those life experiences that I've had, be it from childhood all the way up to now. I would use that as a way to share and answer your question about my childhood, for example, if you asked about that, but I would relate it to the teachings of the Buddha so that you can get some benefit out of it. So it's not just an hour or two hours talking about David and who David is and what he's done in this life, but taking some of those dark things that I experienced growing up and taking some of the horrible things and the difficult things and the challenging things and the things that went well for me and the things that I did as I progressed on this path and turning those into lessons learned or best practices for you guys so that you guys can learn. So we can use next session if you want Max and other people to allow you guys to ask me any questions that you like but what I'll do is I'll kind of answer your question but then I'll kind of make it applicable for you that you can take these certain things that happened in my life and perhaps gain some insight and wisdom from them and get some benefit from my experiences.
2: I think that would be a great session. James says, I'd be interested in that. We've also got Manal, great suggestion about kicking off a new session with dedicated time about David. So looks like, yeah, the group is interested in that, David. I think that would be a very helpful way to kick things off for the next group
1: learning program. Okay. Yeah. Cause we're going to have a lot of new people joining us. So we'll kind of call this like getting to know your teacher or something like that and helping you guys to learn. And it's whatever questions you guys have. So you have three or four days now you can think about some things that are in your mind and whatever questions you guys ask, I will answer and I will share with you lessons learned and things that I realized throughout my life and help you guys benefit from some of the hard times and the good times as well.
2: I know that when I come to you with certain challenges, David, when you are able to talk from personal experience, it's often helpful, but often also reassuring to see that journey you've come on and then see how that uh, you've developed from those experiences. So I've found that useful in the past. I think that could be a very good way to structure this is see it as a way to understand your journey coming into practicing and teaching Buddha's teachings.
1: Okay, so I will start off the next session with just welcoming everybody and say, okay, here we are, and turning it over to you guys. <laughs> over so to us. Over yeah, to you guys. Good. Whatever you guys ask, I will answer. <laughs>
2: I might have to do better preparation.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like a 60 Minutes Dateline 2020. <laughs> Interviewed by 20 people, by 50 people. 20
2: questions. Yeah. Who are you? All right. right, Well, we have no more questions or comments at the moment. All right.
1: So again, I apologize that I wasn't feeling well today, got a little bit sick this week, and hopefully you guys could still understand me through the coughing and uh, the, the sinus congestion. And I think this was a really great session to just kind of explore some miscellaneous topics and really get into some various things that don't always get talked about. Hopefully you guys found some value and what it is that we talked about today related to these frequently asked questions. And as you guys have questions, you know you're always welcome to post them into the Facebook group. You're welcome to message me privately. You're welcome to schedule an appointment through the online website that I have set up where you can actually schedule a individual discussion with me. You can ask questions in class. You can come to either online or in-person classes. My goal is to help you, support you, encourage you, share these teachings with you, and help you to see how you can implement them into your life and improve the condition of the mind and thus improve your life. This better way of life that Gautama Buddha taught so many years ago is just as applicable today as it was over 2,500 years ago because he taught about the natural laws of existence. While he said all conditioned thoughts are impermanent, he didn't say everything's impermanent. Because these natural laws of existence, the natural law of gamma and all these other things that he taught, they're timeless. And that's why what he taught 2,500 years ago is just as applicable today as it was 2,500 years ago, because why the mind gets discontent hasn't changed. The fact that things are impermanent hasn't changed. The fact that there is no self, these three universal truths, impermanence, discontentedness, and non-self, it hasn't changed. The natural laws of existence are the same. So these teachings that the Buddha shared that were a better way of life, that he introduced over 2,500 years ago and shared with a massive number of people and been handed down all these years, these are a better way of life. They aren't a religion, right? A religion is rites, rituals, ceremonies, worship, a centralized organization disseminating the teachings to followers. The Buddhist teachings are all about individual practitioners learning and practicing the teachings with guidance from a teacher where you can independently see the truth for yourself. And by seeing these truths, you will then awaken the mind through this wisdom. You will have this awakened wisdom where the mind will function differently in the world. And that's the whole goal of this practice as a better way of life learning these natural laws of existence, applying them to your life, and then you see the truth for yourself. And based on that wisdom, the mind awakens to this enlightened mental state. And that's the goal of what I'm doing in this group learning program. And we're going to restart this. Sounds like on Wednesday, even though officially we were saying Sunday, we'll kind of kick it off on Wednesday with this discussion where you guys can ask me any questions that you like. So between now and then, keep learning, keep growing, keep meditating. Read this chapter, listen to the podcast, listen to the videos, be sure you're meditating daily at least once, twice, three times a day, whatever works for you. No need to keep track of the time or how often, just focus on training the mind, focus on that eightfold path, right view all the way through to right concentration. That is the path to enlightenment. The more you understand that path and you master it and you implement it into your life gradually over time, you will see that the condition of the mind gets better and better and better and your life is going to get better and better and better. So until next time, have a wonderful, wonderful day and just be well and know that your teacher absolutely loves you and all that you're doing in the world to make your life a better place and to
0: make it better for all the people around you. Sawadee kap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com.